Hey, it's so good to welcome you. Here at the Neighborhood Church, we are following Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. So I'm so glad to be God's people together, to welcome you if you're visiting, and to have this time together. Hey, I want to invite you to turn to a book called Second Kings. It's there in the Old Testament toward the front of the Bible. There's one in front of you. If not, it will be up on the screen. This is in 2 Kings chapter 5. This evening, we are going to look at the thrilling second part of a surprising, shocking, and unlikely story. It's surprising, shocking, and unlikely, not just because of what God does. It's surprising, shocking, and unlikely because of who God does this for. Here's the trick. Humanity has a way of dividing up the world. We like to put boundaries and categories around those who are good and those who are bad. We like to make those who are in and those who are out. We like to say, Taco Bell or Taco Bueno, or we like to say Chipotle or Choloso. Show of hands for Chipotle. Show of hands for Choloso. Whoa. Whoa. See how even now I'm dividing up the world, and I didn't even talk about like torchies and taco joint. I didn't even talk about burgers or sandwiches. But we have this way of dividing up the world. Chipotle is right. Chiloso is. I'm just kidding. I love Chiloso too. We have this way of dividing up the world into these categories. But here's the trick. If that's what humankind loves to do, what God loves to do is take all of those boundaries. And this is what we talked about last week. And he loves to say, oh, that's really cute. And he loves to pick up these boundaries, these dividing markers, and he scoots them so far away to where when we finally wake up and look up, we realize that what God is always doing is pushing those boundaries further and further out until we realize that there are no more outsiders, there's only insiders. God's heart is to relentlessly pursue and invite those who are outside in. So last week we saw a story that we're finishing tonight. And I say finishing, really I'm leaving off an epilogue of an insider that becomes an outsider. But what I want to talk about is Naaman. Last week we began Naaman's story of an outsider, an enemy of God's people, that found himself brought within God's reach. If you were to have a list of all the people that a good Israelite person, Israel being the people of God in the Old Testament, if you had a list of all the people that were worthy or deserving of God's healing power, Naaman would be at the bottom of the list. Not only was he a high-ranking, powerful military leader of an enemy nation that has waged war on God's people, has even taken a slave with him from God's people. He is also cast out and considered cursed because Naaman had what? Leprosy. 
Do you remember last week at the beginning of 1 Kings 5, they start to go through his resume, and then you see, but he had leprosy. As if to put an exclamation point on, here is the last person you thought could ever be welcomed inside. But God was at work even in him. Where we left Naaman last week was in a fit of rage, wondering if he's going to dive in. Tonight we will see how this outsider eventually does jump in and is transformed from the outside in. You see what I did there? Here's what I mean by this. We'll see how a restoration of his body leads to a reorientation of his heart. How? Because Naaman finally is willing to dive in and trust God. A God that he was only beginning to become aware of. But who in just a matter of moments, in a quick dip in a river, he's going to offer his whole life to. Last week you might remember that at the end of this talk, we talked about my little five-year-old Nora on the ledge of the pool, wondering if she should dive in or jump in or not. Of course, what we've done week after week this summer is had me planted, situated, with my arms extended, beckoning her to just jump in, jump in, jump in. Finally, she does what any of you have done if you've learned to swim, and she dives in. The invitation is the same for us. Would you dare to believe that the Father's arms are extended already? All he's waiting on is for us to take that step. This is Naaman's invitation. It's Nora's invitation. It's our invitation. How might God transform us if we have enough faith to dive in? This kind of faith is modeled by Naaman, and here's where I want to spend the remainder of our time. I think we can see at least these four invitations modeled by Naaman. The first is an open mind to believe that God's actually at work. This is important, and we'll talk about this in a minute, because it starts by even daring to believe the possibility that God can do something actually in your everyday life. The second thing we're going to see is an open heart, not just to keep it there, not just to keep it as an intellectual enterprise, but to embody God's transformation, to actually allow just enough to open up and say, this is actually not going to change my mind, it's going to change my life. You with me? Then we're going to see how this leads to an extension, an open hand to give God what's due to him. And then ultimately, God's going to open a door to walk God's way. Open mind, open heart, open hand, open door. You with me? That's where we're going to be headed here in the next few moments as we look at the thrilling second part of Naaman's story. Y'all with me? All right, 2 Kings chapter 5. Tonight, instead of reading the whole thing and going back, we're going to take it bit by bit, and we're going to see, firstly, how it starts with faith enough to dive in. It begins with an open mind. Where we left Naaman, I told you, he had obstacles. This is the thing we got to give Naaman credit for. It is so easy to stay on the ledge. 
It is so easy to say, I like this, I understand this, this makes sense to me, this is solid ground, this is my experience, it makes sense to stay on the ledge. So Naaman, you'll remember, is greeted by Elisha, y'all say Elisha, he's the protege of the big bad Elijah, y'all say Elijah, we're dealing with Elisha. And Elisha doesn't even come to Naaman. He sends his messenger, and the messenger says, yes, yes, yes. Elisha says, you got to go down to the Jordan River, strip and dip seven times. Y'all like that? Strip and dip. Oh, glory, if we could just strip and dip, God would transform us. But here's the trick. Ain't nobody like to strip. Ain't nobody like to dip. If you do, talk to me or another pastor. We will pray with you. We will counsel you. We will encourage you. We will say sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's not. For Naaman, he thought this is absolutely not going to happen. And so Naaman says in his ethnocentric self, I am not dumping and driving, duh, good night, jumping and diving into this river. I got two perfectly good rivers back in Syria. There is no way I'm going to humble myself and do this thing. And by the way, why can't Elisha talk to me face to face, man to man? He sends a messenger when I've rolled up here with all my money, with all my entourage, with all my expectations of what should happen. You see, there's two things that's keeping Naaman on the ledge. And I think if we're honest, they're the same two things that keep us from the faith that dives in. The first is an ego. And here's how that looks in my life. Don't I sometimes think that I could do a better job than God? I'll tell you why I believe that. Because my life bears witness to a person that would rather just go out and make something happen than trusting God for something to happen. And this is very closely tied to the second obstacle keeping Naaman on the ledge, and that is his expectations. Don't we just know what God should do? This bears itself out in my life, because if you were to record all the ways I pray, you would know that it's less of an ask and more of a demand. Now, God can handle it. God can handle us as we are, where we are, which is why the Spirit of God is interceding for us and with us, and Jesus is interceding for us and with us, because we don't know how to pray as we ought. Because sometimes we can approach God in our lives with egotistical manners and expectations that we know what he ought to do. Naaman said, man, I thought he would come out here, he would do the thing, he would do the blessing, he would wave his hand, and it would be this magic ritual. But here's the trick. What if Naaman got what he thought he deserved, which is his ego, and got what he thought should be done, which is his expectations? Stay with me here. What if God gave you everything you actually wanted? What if you got that one thing? You know the thing. That one thing that if I just X, 
then why? How many of you have realized only with hindsight that perhaps rather than getting what I wanted, God gave me actually what I needed? And how often do we really know the difference when we go to ask? I think a way I want to illustrate this is a way that we've experienced in our community. And if I may, Kieslers, I want to talk about how God used an opportunity in prayer to help to teach us about how to surrender some of our expectations and our egos and to trust God that his way can actually form us and shape us. And one of the ways that played itself out in our community is right when the Keeslers in a new community came and right as we were becoming the neighborhood church, y'all may remember that we were in partnership with 60 wonderful, beautiful children in rural Kenya from an orphanage that the Keeslers helped to start. It's a long and convoluted story, but it was a difficult one and a heart-wrenching one in which they became in the, caught in the middle of a suit because someone was trying to take the land, take the place, and actually take the children and pry them away from the support that the Kieslers had set up and the network that they had set up. And we were begging and praying, and we had everything sorted out. Wouldn't you know that isn't God always for the orphan? Wouldn't you know that God is always for the marginalized, the outcast, the downcast? God, we know what you should do. It's so easy. In fact, in the entire country of Kenya, everybody was weighing in saying, duh, let them have it. Let them keep this. Let them have the kids. And yet, we didn't get what we wanted. And I will never forget, I will never forget, God willing, till the day I die, Kathy standing here and pastoring me, saying, we pray and we ask, but we trust that if things do not go our way, the way we want, we will trust that God knew something we didn't. And in our church, that has evolved to say we pray believing God can. We ask and ask and ask and ask that God will. And then we trust that God loves us no matter what. And that begins, I think, to form in us a different set of expectations that lead us to ask not why, God, would you not do this, or why, God, would you not do this, but instead it's a movement to what, God, are you up to? What, God, are you forming in me, through me? What, God, are you working around me? It's a way of saying, God, I am surrendering my ego, I'm surrendering my expectations, all I want is to know where you are and what you're up to. That to me is a vital difference. Our culture and how many Christians have walked away from the faith because God didn't meet expectations. We see this played out in every single relationship. What happens with conflict? It's when expectations aren't met. And yet, you got to work it out. Lynette and Jeremiah are talking about it. They're ready to get married, and they've been through our premarital prep. A conflict is anything that requires a resolution. 
And conflict occurs when expectations aren't met, yes? Well, it doesn't just work for Lynette and Jeremiah. It works for us and God. Could it be that we could dare to believe with an open mind that says, God, perhaps you are up to something even though I can't see it? Naaman would have stayed on the ledge and turned around if God didn't give him another chance, not just to open his mind, but then eventually to open his heart. And this is the second movement we see. And God uses someone. Now, let me back up. Let me back up. Because here's what gets him unstuck, firstly. Y'all join me in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 13. I just got excited and was ready to get to where he stripped and dipped. I didn't write stripped and dipped in my outline. It just feels right. Y'all, can y'all go with me on that? If you take nothing away from this message, remember, God is inviting you to strip. This is what happens in the summer at the neighborhood church. It's hot. We're tired. Amen. Okay, listen. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 13. I love this. We saw this last week. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father... If this prophet had told you to do some great and incredible thing, wouldn't you have done it? If he had done what you wanted, wouldn't you have actually believed it or done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? He's basically saying, hey, will you trust even though it seems ordinary? Will you trust even though it doesn't make sense? Because if Naaman had got what he wanted, he may not have ever opened his heart. He may not have ever experienced this kind of transformation. He probably would have just paid Elisha and gone home. But God used this powerless individual to speak truth to power. And I love that Pastor Kathy tonight was talking about listening to God. How many of you in the last month has had someone speak something to you that just gave you pause to say, I feel like I need to zero in and hear this? One of the expressions the pastors of this church uses quite a bit is to listen in Christ. Not just to listen to Christ, but to sit with another person and listen in Christ. God, what do you have for me in this? There's a prayer that says, Christ, be in the heart of each to whom I speak and be in the mouth of each who speaks unto me. There is a listening where God is calling to us even in the voice of others. And it's beginning to open up his mind to where he finally begins to open up his heart. Now we'll get there. You see, faith enough to dive in doesn't just require that you expand your expectations, open up your mind, but to open up your heart. And we see a restoration of his body that then leads to a reorientation of his heart. In verses 14 to 15, we see finally Naaman turns himself around. He goes down. He stripped and he dipped himself into the Jordan seven times. Y'all, who immediately is thinking of baptism? This way of going down and going up. It's so hard for Christians not to go back and see this kind of cleansing ritual. It wouldn't have been unlike the way that lepers or those with skin diseases would have cleansed themselves to engage with God and society. And so what's so powerful is I got to believe that Naaman at that time is going, okay, here's once, okay, here's twice. He's probably thinking this is so ordinary, so mundane, this can't affect any transformation. And I love that God surprises him. And so what happens is he goes down seven times just as the man of God had told him. 
Remember, Elisha didn't tell him directly. But he had faith enough to move off the ledge to trust God. Because I think if Elijah had told him face to face, he might have misplaced the credit and said, Thanks, Elisha, you done good. But instead, there's this other degree of separation as if to say, if this really works, if you're really transformed, it must only be because of God, not an ordinary river or an ordinary prophet. You with me? His flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. If you have been around this church and are familiar with the stories of Jesus, how many of you are immediately thinking those that become like children of God to inherit the kingdom of God? It's so rich, it's hard not to read backwards as Christians. And then, like when Jesus healed ten lepers, nine of them went away praising God and jumping for joy, and only one of them came back and said, hey, by the way, thanks. We see an echo of another outsider, unclean, healed, and actually runs back to say thanks. Look at verse 15. This is that restoration of his body that leads to a reorientation of his heart. So then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, and this time he stands before Elisha. But he doesn't say, thanks, Elisha, here's a couple milli, see ya, He says, now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. This is nothing short of a wholesale transformation, not just a confession. You see this throughout the text because when Naaman continues to talk to him, he says, hey, please, can your servant, all of a sudden this proud guy that has all these people answering to him begins to even change. And you see this move in his ego beginning to dissipate where all of a sudden he's saying, please, would you forgive your servant? Please accept this from your servant. You see almost instantly this transformation. Why? Because it's not just something he believes intellectually. It's something that he's embodied. What? Naaman experiences is a seeing that leads to a believing, to a recognition of God that actually leads to repentance. That word repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in action. He sees an encounter with the God of Israel who he's starting to believe may be the God of the whole universe. He sees an encounter with God that leads to an embodiment. Y'all, I am confident that those who will make it to the end by God's grace are those who haven't just said yes or prayed a prayer or been baptized, but those who have done all the above but have had an actual transformative encounter with the living God. What are some of those moments in your story. If you've stuck around the community of faith here or elsewhere, I hope you've had people bear witness to a God that actually is on the move in your everyday, ordinary life, even if it's further outside than you ever could have imagined. For me, I've got to tell you a story that I've shared in the past, but I want to share it again because I think it has a parallel to Naaman And I think it also has a second piece of the puzzle you might not have heard that I'd like to share with you this evening. But 
I, even as a seminarian and a Christian since I was a kid, growing up in church, had to embody something God wanted me to get. And I tell you, it took going to Southern California for a couple spiritual leadership retreats to finally get it through to me. When I first came to this church, I was a pastoral apprentice in the previous incarnation of this community. And they sent me, y'all sent me, by God's grace, to this place. And within these retreats, baked into every week-long retreat, was what's called an extended personal communion, which is a fancy name for you sit in the woods for five hours with Jesus. The first time, everyone is going on and on, and we're packing up a sack lunch, and I had some of these Californian Christians saying, you know, I'm just going to have lunch with Jesus. I'm just going to curl up in Abba's lap. I'm just going to be loved by him and just commune with him. And I'm sitting there going, what am I going to do for five hours? And I take my little lunch and I go fuss and cuss and read my Bible and try to drum up something so I can come back during the debrief time and say, yeah, I think God was telling me this or that or the other. Because I was in a place coming out of a season of my life in ministry where I wasn't sure I could make it another year. Spoiler alert, y'all had just brought me on. I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. Because I was convinced that God didn't like me. He might love me, maybe. But I was convinced he was more like a boss or a taskmaster than someone who loves me and can be loved back. I knew all the answers and I could tell you all the things, but I hadn't yet opened up my heart. So what happened on that second retreat, I knew Wednesday was coming. I packed my lunch. I go into my retreat room. I open up the windows because it was California and 70 degrees and sunny. And I thought, this is crazy. I am convinced you want nothing to do with me. I'm convinced that I am not good enough. I'll never measure up. I can't preach. I can't do this. I can't sit with people. I can't pray enough. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then I thought, well, I can't waste this time because there's going to be 25 people from all over the country sharing their profound experiences, so I better make something up. And I flip open my Bible, and I turn to Isaiah 43, 4. And I zero in on it, and I read these words. Because you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give nations to have you back. And I promise you, I had never read that verse. How many of you have encountered a passage of Scripture, and you like have probably heard it, maybe you skimmed it, but you didn't read it until you just, well, it was just the right time to read it. And I'm looking at these words and I'm thinking, I have never heard God say, I love you. And my little seminary brain said, oh, it's speaking to Israel and that's the context. And it was like I just got knocked off my socks and he was like, no, I love you. And I sat just for an hour marinating and trying to soak it in, and could I dare open my heart enough to believe this? And then I got up and I sat down, and I can only tell you what I think amounts to like a waking 
memory or vivid kind of just image in my mind's eye. And it was of little four-year-old Adam just running around and jumping in one of my grandparents' bedrooms because they used to watch us when we were little while my parents worked. And I was just running and bebopping around and talking and talking and talking. And I was with a figure that I could only explain as Jesus. I just knew that was Jesus. And I'm sitting there in this chair, in this retreat center, in Southern California, and I just become undone. And the only thing I could say was, it has been 25 years since I've just sat and talked with you. It's been 25 years since I've ever allowed myself to be loved by you. And it was as if in that moment, there was this big bang. And if you're familiar with the theory of the big bang, they say that it didn't just bang and that's it. The big bang, they say, released all the matter into the universe and it's actually still moving. They call it the rapidly expanding universe. And the reason why this encounter was so drastic and why I tell it Again, maybe for the second, third, or some of you might have heard it before just in personal conversations, is because it has so impacted my life in ministry because it makes all the difference to embody the identity of a beloved child from a God who loves you more than you could ask or imagine. And he, in his grace, met me there when I was fussing and cussing and in no way prepared for it. But I really do believe this, that The idea of God being love and loving us as his children is all the difference and it affects everything in the rapidly expanding universe of my heart. And I really truly now believe that that you're headed in the right direction. If the God you encounter is more loving, more expansive, and more beautiful than you ever imagined. There are fewer and fewer things that I'm certain of in this world. How this story ends can be added to that list. But I am certain of this, that God looks like Jesus, and the Abba, the Father that Jesus knows, is love. Through and through, at the core of his being, he is love. And the universe that he has created is ordered on an axis of love. And I believe that you can never outbelieve God's radical, relentless love. And I think the degree that you open your heart and embody this, it will change your life. It will change your view of yourself. It will change your view of your neighbor. It's this kind of restoration, this kind of moment that leads to a reorientation. And how much bigger is the God that we have than the God that we ever thought we had. The God that we thought is divvying up the universe along with us, but instead is extending the boundary and inviting all of those who were out in. Would we open our minds, would we open our hearts, and allow ourselves to believe that He is who He says He is? And I think that leads us to open our hands, that third movement there. So in 2 King, Kings 5, the story goes on 
where he runs back to Elisha. And he says, please, please, please accept this gift from your servant. Can you see how already he's transformed? He came to get something, and now he's there to give something. He came with all of his power and status, and now he's saying, please let me, your servant. So, the prophet answered to him, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged, he refused. Spoiler alert, if you go to the end of this incredible story, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, doesn't receive anything. He goes out to lie and to take something. We don't have time to get into the last chunk of the story, but you will find a reversal where Naaman was an outsider that went in. Y'all dig this. Gehazi goes and tries to get some of that money behind Elisha's back, and we've got an insider that finds himself on the outs. How many of you read ahead and saw the end of this story? This is incredible. All the more shocking, surprising, and unlikely to see this transformation that Naaman has. Elisha doesn't accept a thing. So finally, Naaman says, fine, if you won't, Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. This is powerful. How many of you are wondering why on earth he wants as much earth as two mules can carry? Let me ask you this. How many of you go to an amazing place and come home with a souvenir? Let me ask you this. How many of you, when you're in a situation and a season in your life where you doubt God's goodness, where you doubt that he'll actually do what you says he'll do, how many of you need to go back to a place in your mind and in your heart where at least it made sense and you'd seen him do something? For some of you, and this is what we talk about those who are being baptized in our church, we say right here at the baptismal waters, we want you to impress this on your heart, to impress this on your mind as a stake in the ground that will guide your whole life that says even 10 years or 20 years from now, when I doubt and don't feel it, can I remember and go back to that stake in the ground where he was faithful and I was convinced, would that be enough? To remind me that God might actually do it again. For Naaman, he wanted to take as much of this Israel ground with him to his Syrian or Aram ground. Aramean ground. Same place, two different ways of saying it. He wants to build an altar of Israel's dirt to remind him of the one who restored and reoriented his life. He reoriented his life so much that he says, I'm no longer going to go with my friends, my co-workers, my king. I'm not going to worship their gods, their pretend. He never fixed my leprosy. He was never there for me. I've never seen those gods act and move. But I remember when he brought me up out of the water and set me on a new direction. For me, in my office... I have loads of earthen altars to remind me of the things I forget. And wouldn't you know that after that retreat that I encountered the God who is love, 
I still could not really fully remember it in my everyday life. But every time I would sit down and shut up, I would just keep hearing, you're my beloved son whom I love. And finally, weeks after that retreat, weeks after that encounter, I went to my grandparents' house. You see, I was watched by my grandmother, Bobby, who when I was 10 years old went to be with the Lord. Bobby loved Jesus and told us and taught us about Jesus. It was just a natural and easy part of her life. Well, after she passed, my grandfather, not the one that comes and sits here, my other grandfather, he got remarried, and they live here in the area. So I was having dinner with he and Carol, my step-grandmother, whom I love. And as we were winding down the evening, he says, oh, I almost forgot. I found something of Bobby's. It's a little picture, tiny little picture of little four-year-old Adam curled up, in one of our back rooms, praying. He says, matter of fact, she used to always tell this story to us and her friends, me and my friends. And she said, I know this little guy. God has something for him because one day I couldn't find him at the house. I was looking in the backyard, in the front yard. I was looking in the living room. And then I finally heard this little chitter-chatter in the spare bedroom at the front of the house in the corner of that little love seat in the office. And she knocked on the door and she said, Adam, what are you doing? And he told me this story of how four-year-old little Adam looked up at Bobby and said, I'm talking to Jesus, Bobby. And to have this is... Such a thing that God might do to remind me when I feel, even this week, inadequate. Can I even do this? Am I even worthy? Am I even worth it? What a gift to take just enough little earth to remind me of the God who can transform us and reorient us and restore us. Naaman was doing what we all do. And trying to give God not only thanksgiving, but to receive from God the reminders of his goodness and his faithfulness. But then reality sets in. And I think almost instantly he realizes as he's loading up the dirt to carry, that he almost instantly remembers, man, i got to take this back there. How many of you have been at a retreat? Maybe you grew up in youth group like me. And you had what's called a mountaintop experience. If you're shaking your head, you went to some of the Baptist camps that I went to. And then you're like, oh yeah, school. My same circles, my same place, my same reputation and status. Reality sets in. And this question is not just germane to Naaman, it's germane to all of God's people who will get kicked out of their land, far away from their earth, and they'll ask, how do I worship the one true God over here in Babylon or Assyria or Naaman in Syria? So Naaman asks Elisha, hey, before I go, 
May the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master, the king, enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, because Naaman's his right-hand man, and he's leaning in my arm, and I have to bow there also. Um, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Now, pause button here. This is where you say, no, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. And you want to go, wait, wait, wait. Generations later, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they're supposed to bow down to that image that was made by a king, they saw him make it out there. They're standing up strong, and they go into the oven. You're ready for Elijah to say, dude, you were this close. You almost had it. What does he say? He says, go in peace. And he's not just saying, see ya. This is a way of saying, all is well. This is a way of saying, live your faith with a clear conscience in a hostile culture. Stick with me here because I wish I didn't preach this because it's not so black and white. But isn't this a testimony and a tradition you see throughout the landscape of Scripture where Paul will say, hey, some of you might not eat meat sacrificed to idols. Even though it's two blocks from the Corinthian temple, some of you just can't do it. But others of you are like, give me some more baby back ribs, please. I'll take the idliest of all of them. Can't you see how for Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, their intentional resistance was the right thing at the right time for the right place. And can't you see how this person, Naaman, who is restored and God's moving and God's working, he's going back to a tricky culture and a tricky situation. Could it be that God is bigger than we thought? Could it be that he's more gentle in how he deals with us? Where what he commands doesn't change, but how it gets lived out might It's the same reason why I have tattoos and my God-loving, Jesus-following neighbors think I can't be a real pastor. I'm not laughing. They legit don't think I'm a legitimate pastor. But we love them. Do they love Jesus? Are they listening to him and following him? Yes. It's the same reason Why some of us have our discipleship group that we used to have at a bar. And why other churches would not set ten feet within the door of a bar. Could it be that God meets his children where they are and walks with them where he wants them to be? And couldn't that have just enough gray to where we each need to listen for and discern our own invitation. I want to close with a quick parable and our invitations. Jason Knight was thinking about the end of this story and he sent me this parable. And I love it because we started talking about Nora jumping in the pool 
Jason is going to talk about two young kids, both in their swim trunks, both with their floaties. Y'all know the puddle jumpers? One is in the shallow end near the stairs, jumping, kicking, splashing, rocking and rolling. The other, however, is at the far end of the pool, bobbing up and down, kind of struggling, not in danger, just can't reach the bottom and can't really move as quickly. Their father comes and says to the two kids, hey, time to get out, dry off, take them puddle jumpers off, and come join the family at the table. So, of course, the kid over here at the shallow end, he just pops right out, swims on over. He does the breaststroke and the backstroke, and he, Michael Phelps, his way to the stairs, takes the puddle jumper off, dries off. He's right there at the table. Now, maybe that child starts to think that he's the better kid. After all, here I am at the table. Here I am already here. He says, jump, I say, how high? He says, go, I'm there. But when the father looks back and sees the second child, he sees that she hasn't quite even made it to the shallow end yet. Does the father think that she's a bad kid? Does the father think she hates the family? Of course not. Because he's a loving father who understands how quickly his not-so-nimble child moves in deep water. What he sees is her obedience, and he celebrates the direction that she's heading. Those who have ears to hear, hear. Does the father say, why haven't you done what I asked and dried off yet? Of course not. Even though it was a command of the father, a command that hasn't changed, a command that was given to all his children, he knows where the child is currently situated, and he continues to encourage her toward the table. The father waits in love and grace because he knows that beneath the surface of the water, those small hands are paddling and those tiny feet are stretching to find their footing. And it's so easy for some of us who have spent more time on our journey, more time learning to swim, more time jumping in and out. It's so easy for us to discount the direction and the journey on which some of our other brothers and sisters are headed. Thank goodness we have a God who knows every heart and celebrates every step toward life. Because far be it from me to think that I've done every little thing and taken every step he's invited me to take. We follow a Savior, Jesus, who not only says, come follow me, he says, come to me. Come to me, those floundering in the deep end. Come to me, all who are swimming laps in the shallow end. Come to me, take my yoke upon you, and walk with me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Come to me, I'll be right beside you, setting the pace and showing you the way toward the table in abundant life. And I love this. Jason woke up the next morning and sent me another email with a couple sentences. He says, you know, I've been thinking about it. It's not just that God asks us, it's that God puts his swim trunks in, dives into the pool, puts his hands underneath us to meet us, to support us in his arms as we learn to live our life with him. Amen? You don't have to do this alone. 
Naaman had to go and do it alone. But he wasn't really alone, was he? He carried this expansive view, this expansive relationship of a God that was not made by human hands, a God that could not be seen, but was very much deep within his bones. Where is God meeting you? Where are you on the ledge? Where is God inviting you to open your mind to believe Where is God inviting you to open your heart, to embody what you've seen and heard? Where is God inviting you to open your hand, to trust him, to take with you these things to remind you? Where is God inviting you to open a door and walk in his blessing, to go in peace and realize he is with you each and every step? Where is he inviting you to have just enough faith to dive in and take the next step. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your willingness to come to us. Jesus, we are grateful for your invitation, come to me. Jesus, we are grateful that when you had every advantage You did not consider equality with God something to be used to your own advantage or exploited, but instead you made yourself nothing. You humbled yourself. You became a servant. You became obedient even to death and death on a cross. So that at just the right time, God would exalt you to the highest place that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess on the earth and under the earth that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. We ask that we would have enough strength to follow your lead, to take the leap down and back up again in the arms of the Father, entrusting him with our lives, our minds, our hearts, all these things. Would you help us and bless us and send us out confident of your love and your presence with us? In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Go in peace.